So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we have gathered with one simple goal in mind. Jesus, we lift you up. We want nothing seen, heard, or experienced in this place but Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, would you give us what we need that we don't have? Would you teach us what we need to learn that we don't know? Would you transform us more and more into your image? Here's the truth we understand and embody today, Lord. Everything we need is in you. So in these moments together, as we open your word, help us to rest in you. And use me, Lord. Hide me behind you, uh, that the words I say and my thoughts might be pleasing to you. And Lord, there's someone here today that has taken steps toward you, but they're living in Jesus plus land. They believe in you intellectually, but they've not trusted in you completely. May they understand today that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Lord, I ask this in your wonderful name. I say once more, Jesus. Amen. Now take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Find something to write with, something to write on. And I want to talk to you about this simple premise today. The Jesus you want versus the Jesus you need. Let's just spend a moment in review. We started in Colossians 1 last week, this ancient city today in modern Turkey. I've driven by it. That's about all you can do. You can visit Ephesus, from which the letter to Ephesians was written. You can visit Ephesus and see the most magnificent archaeological ruins in the world. Uh, but if you drive by Colossae, you see a field. <laughs> Some farmer is growing their crops on those ancient ruins that hopefully one day will be excavated. It's right near another well-known biblical city, and so Paul refers to this in his letter. It's the city of Laodicea. I read this morning as I'm reading through the Bible, as I'm in Revelation, I read the warning of Jesus to the church at Laodicea, a warning that probably the church today needs to hear. You're neither hot nor cold. You're not really living for the Lord. You're just pushing through. So there were some threats that the Christians in Colossae were dealing with. The primary threat is that many of them did not believe that Jesus was enough. They believed He was good. He was a teacher, a prophet, like many other religions believe about Jesus today, but that He was not God, that He was not all they needed. And in fact, there was another threat. Many believed that there was some mysterious club, only a few could really get it, and that probably was aided and abetted by the religious people because we see in Judaism those religious classes had developed, Pharisees and Sadducees who seemed to think they were more special than the others who feared God. So perhaps in Christianity that same thing had begun to take place even in the early church, and we see it today, and we fight against it. We elevate stages so that we can see, but sometimes we put pastors and ministers of worship and missionaries on elevated stages, and we think that we can't serve God like they serve God. 
And this is evidenced in the church because we see that so few, as I've already mentioned, even in our church, so few really get involved in what God is doing and in His work. So still today, people want Jesus plus, and it's a good time to remind us that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Many people don't understand this, and yet the key verses in Colossians 1 reflect that. Look again at verse 15 and 20 in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He's before all things, and in Him all things Hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This verse, this passage, it sums it up, doesn't it? Everything is for Jesus. Say, for Jesus. You were created for Jesus. All things were created for Jesus. He's not interested in being prominent. He's not interested in being the president. He wants to be preeminent because he is preeminent. And and this passage answers two of the biggest life questions. First, who am I? And second, why am I here? Who am I and why am I here? Who am I? I am a valuable creation of Jesus because all things were created by Him. You are a valuable creation of Jesus. But why are you here? You are here for the glory of Jesus because all things were created for him. That's the main idea of this whole four-chapter book called Colossians. Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. Let's say that together. Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. Everything you need is found in Jesus Christ. And this thought continues in chapter 2. Look at the central verses of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, who's him? For in Him, who is Him, church? For in Him, the whole fullness, fullness, do you see that again? Same as chapter 1, of deity, there's no doubt, Jesus is God, dwells bodily. Now that's significant this time of year because we think of the Jesus represented in the cradle, the manger. We think of the infant Jesus. And yet I want you to understand, uh, the baby born in a manger did not just arrive on the scenes in the early pages of the gospel. What Paul is teaching here is that Jesus has always been. He's not God Jr. who just showed up in the New Testament. In the infant, the fullness of God dwelt. Notice verse 10. And you have been filled in Him. Think of that word filled. 
You have been filled. I love the way the New Living translates this. It says, and you are complete in Him. In Romanticism, we might say today, if we care about someone, that they complete us. And, and what is being said here is that everything you need is complete in Jesus. Now, this is the whole point of the message, but I, I need to say that again and again in this moment. Everything you need is complete in Jesus. In Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. One way the threats manifest themselves today is in the way that folks like you and me look at Jesus. Remember, when you look at Scripture, we don't read it through the lens that I believe the New Testament followers would read it because we read Scriptures too often as if God is saying something to those people, those who aren't there yet. And while there's a message for them, the message to them is simple. Jesus saves. The message in Scripture is to us. This is to Christ followers. Paul was writing to Christ followers who did not understand fully who Jesus was. So there's no doubt in my mind that as I gather on a Sunday morning, I'm speaking to some who profess to follow Jesus who've not yet fully understood who He is and what it means to be complete in Christ. We don't truly view Jesus as enough. Maybe it's because we've not become mature disciples. I think if there's something a worldwide pandemic revealed is that we have failed at maturing disciples. And that's the goal. Remember verse 28 of chapter 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's my job as pastor, not to make you feel good, not to give you a motivational speech, but it's to help you be presented mature in Christ. If you're not maturing in Christ, you're not accomplishing the purpose for which he's allowed you still to live here. And he reminds us in the early verses of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." In whom we're hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See it? Hear it? You have full understanding. You have treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. That's why it says in verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, 
rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Walk in Him, be built in Him, be grounded in Him, be established in Him. It's all about Him. He is our hope. He is our help. There's no mystery, no secret sauce to the Christian way. The Christian way, the Christian walk is Jesus. We're to be in Him. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. I ask you today, have you accepted that reality? You know how you know if you've accepted that? It's what you think you get from Christianity. Someone were to ask you, okay, I, I see you're a, a Christian. What, do you, what would I get if I became a Christian? If your answers are about health and wealth, about everything being okay, if your answers are about peace and prosperity, just well-meaning and doing in your life, then you've missed it. Because what you get when you follow Jesus is Jesus. And that's enough. And if you haven't understood that, then I would suggest today that maybe, maybe you are looking like the Colossians for Jesus plus. And in reality, instead of understanding that we were created by Christ, for Christ, in the image of God, we create Christ in our image. The Jesus we want. Maybe the Jesus we wish that was. We become like a character named Ricky Bobby, and this is not an endorsement. But in the movie Talladega Nights, when praying for a meal, Ricky Bobby, the race car driver, says, Dear Lord, baby Jesus, he's in question by those who were around the table. And don't you know that Jesus grew up? You don't have to pray to baby Jesus. And he says, I like the Christmas Jesus best. When you say grace, you can say grace to grown-up Jesus or bearded Jesus or teenager Jesus or whoever you want. So he proceeds to pray, dear eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant Jesus. And when he finishes praying, his friend Cal also rather crudely says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party. And I want a Jesus who parties. Now that sounds absurd and sacrilegious. But I think some of us are stuck on the Jesus we want instead of the Jesus who is. And at this time of year, it's particularly, it's, it's baby Jesus. We love baby Jesus because he's kind of harmless, because he's helpless. Or really, though we might not admit it, we like Santa Christ. Because we want a Jesus who's joyful and generous. And yet that's not the Jesus of Scripture. They're false. False depictions of Jesus and false depictions of Jesus always deny reality. And they deprive us of all that Jesus wants to give us. They deceive us. So that's why when you look back in Colossians, you see that Paul was addressing dangerous, false perceptions of Jesus. 
And if we, the church, don't understand who Jesus really is, then we, the church, have lost our way. If we, the church, have made it about buildings and budgets, if we make it about how we worship and and what we wear, if we make it all about us and, and what makes us feel good, then wow, we've missed it. That's not the Jesus who's preeminent in Scripture. Look at verse 8. See, one of the dangers. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. What's he he warning against? He's warning against philosophy or empty deceit or or human tradition. He's he's warning against rationalism. And, And I want you to know today that you don't need Dr. Jesus, Ph.D., who questions what you know. Yet some of you, that's how you think of your faith. It's all about wisdom. If, if only I could learn a little more. If only I knew a little more. Everything would be okay. And so you're creating Jesus in your image. Because Jesus must want me to be able to check off the knowledge box. Yes, he wants you to be a lifelong learner. Scripture teaches that. You should read. You should get in the Word. You should grow. But understand, ultimately, you will never solve spiritual problems with human solutions. So, when someone is discouraged or, or perhaps feeling depressed, what's the first thing we do? The first thing we do is open God's Word. And they say, is there any help? Is there any hope from God's Word? Have you taken these to Jesus? Like the old hymn says, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Take it to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. Is there a sin issue that needs to be confessed? And then when we've done all that, just like we would if we had a physical illness, it's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to someone. You may need to go to a doctor, but always start with Jesus. We see this in evangelical circles today in a different way. It's a theological pride that begins to look at others who may interpret some points of Scripture and secondary or what we would call tertiary issues as they're not as good as us. I'd never go to that church because of what they think about this. Or the false claim that I often hear from people through 30 years of ministry, whatever church they're a part of, is just not deep enough for me. Let me tell you, I've spent a lifetime around professing Christ followers. The problem is not what we know. I know you don't want to amen that, so let me say that again, and I'll amen it. The problem is not what we know. Amen. Most of us are educated beyond our obedience. It's not the truth we know that changes us. It's the truth we obey. More knowledge is not the answer. Philosophy, psychology, even the obsessive study of theology. Know what you believe. Understand the Scriptures. But understand that knowledge is not the end all. But there's more. We don't need Jesus plus human wisdom. And we don't need Jesus plus human action. 
Look at verse 16. Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What is he addressing? Well, first he addressed rationalism. Now he's addressing legalism. Those that thought, yeah, I like Jesus, but I guess I've got to follow all these rules for God to really like me. I can't touch these foods, or I can't drink these drinks, or I've got to go to these festivals in this way. And Paul was saying, you don't need Deputy Jesus policing what you do. You don't need Deputy Jesus policing what you do. Legalism teaches that your spiritual well-being is based on external behavior. But this is not right. In fact, that's what separates Christianity from every other world religion. Do you understand that? In Islam, if you follow the five pillars of Islam, you're going to be okay. In Buddhism, if you follow the noble eightfold path, you're going to be okay. In Hinduism, everything's a god, so everybody's okay. You could have some elements of the Catholic faith that says if you just go through the motions, if you go to Mass, if, if you confess, then you'll be okay. You could even find that in a Baptist church. If you go to Sunday school and, and you go to church and you put something in the offering plate and you have good attendance, or if you walk down an aisle or pray a prayer, you're dipped or dunked. But Paul says, don't get caught up in that. Some of those come along. They're outward expressions of the inner reality that we have. When I have Jesus, I'm going to pursue holiness. When I have Jesus, I'm going to obey His commands. I'm going to not forsake the assembling of myself together, for example. But those are outflows of what I have inwardly. Our faith is not based on what we do, but what He's done. Our only hope of righteousness is in Him. Remember, we read this verse a moment ago, Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We're only righteous. Because God nails our sins to the cross. And you and I have to decide today if that's enough. It begins with unbelief. That's the first sin we have to deal with. You know what it says about Jesus? It says that when he died on the cross... Unbelief was nailed to the cross. But there are other things. Some of you are struggling with addiction, and it's got a hold on you. You've never been able to be what God wants you to be because of this, and it's because you're trying to resolve this in your own strength, and you've not really understood that your addiction was nailed to the cross. That's not you. How about the Baptist one? Yeah, it's in Scripture. Gluttony. Because gluttony is just another form of addiction. 
You're just trying to medicate yourself to, to have your needs met by what you're putting inside. Still not you? We've all fallen short on this one. We lie. Maybe not the big ones. We even make a name for it. We call it a little white lie. Or we just don't trust the complete truth. Or maybe to our employer, we just take a little time. Or maybe it's greed. How's this one manifested? <laughs> well, here's a way to know. Have you acknowledged that everything you have is a gift from God? And are you using your life to steward those resources as he commanded? If not, the Bible has a name for that. It calls it greed. There's lust. Lust of the eyes. Nailed to the cross. Maybe the root of all of our sin, pride, I can do it, I can handle it, nailed to the cross. You've been unfaithful to a spouse, you're involved in premarital sexual relationships, immorality, nailed to the cross. You getting the point? Oh, I forgot I got a lot of church people here today. Because the Bible talks about sins of omission as well as sins of commission. So maybe you're like me and your prayer life really isn't what it should be. Nailed to the cross. You didn't spend time in the Word this week? Nailed to the cross. What that scripture said is that he canceled our sin debt. Do you understand that? Jesus the Christ canceled our sin debt. And he did that by nailing it to the cross. What in the world do you think you can add to that? Jesus plus legalism, it's not the answer. Stop trying to earn what you've already been given. But there's more. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. <laughs> I really like this one. You don't need hippie Jesus. You don't need hippie Jesus telling you how to feel. This is a big one today. Paul was addressing mysticism. So he's addressed rationalism, legalism, mysticism, experientialism, the emphasis on how you feel. And this is how this is manifest today. You're not really a Christian if you don't feel this way. If when we sing that song, you don't get those Holy Ghost bumps, 
then you must not really be a Christian. Or, oh, you haven't spoken in tongues yet? You must not really be a Christian. You don't hear God audibly? You must not be a Christian. You don't have a vision or a dream regularly? You must not be a Christian. You don't share a prophetic word? You must not be a Christian. Your relationship with God is not based on how you feel. It's not based on an experience. It's based on a covenant. You had a debt that you could never pay. You were headed to a Christless eternity in hell with me. But he took our sins and he nailed them to the cross. And he made a covenant with the blood of Jesus Christ that no matter what we do, he holds on to us. I'm grateful that he made me feel. I'm grateful that I can express emotion that my voice has highs and lows, that my eyes sometimes leak, that my heart sometimes pound. I embrace my feelings, but my faith is not based on how I feel. No more than my commitment to my lovely wife is based on how I feel on a particular day. It's based on my commitment to God and my covenant with her. You don't need hippie Jesus. And, and some of you are caught up in this. And everything's good as long as you feel good. Well, guess what? You're going to wake up one day and you're going to feel like a word I'm not going to say. Because that happens. But when we encounter Jesus, he reaches our heart and our mind. One more warning. Let me read it from verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of of the flesh. You don't need Dr. Jesus, PhD. You don't need Deputy Jesus. You don't need Hippie Jesus. And you don't need Monk Jesus. What does a monk do? Not being disparaging, but what does a monk do? A, a monk withdraws from society, denying themselves of everything, as if to express that that's going to make them closer to God. Now, the Bible does talk about certain periods of denial, and it has a name for that. It's called fasting. There should be seasons in our life when we fast from those things that we feel like we need in order to get that which we need more. But asceticism is a se severe self-discipline, an avoidance of all forms of indulgence, denial. You're not spiritual enough unless you do without certain things. So, in an extreme way, this is seen by people around the world that even today will take a whip and, and beat themselves with a whip. Or others that will wear a belt with nails in the belt so that their body feels the pain as they move. Because to cause this pain may somehow remind them of Christ and cause them to be more holy. Here's the problem. All of these things, Dr. Jesus, Deputy Jesus, Hippie Jesus, Monk Jesus, you know what they all have in common? They all say that Jesus is not enough. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that Jesus plus nothing equals everything.
In Jesus, you have complete salvation. In Jesus, you have complete victory. In Jesus, you have complete forgiveness. In Jesus, you have complete sufficiency. In Jesus, you have everything you need. You don't need Jesus plus wisdom. You don't need Jesus plus actions. You don't need Jesus plus an experience or feelings. You don't need Jesus plus self-denial. You don't need Jesus plus anything, but you desperately need Jesus. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you get everything he has to offer. Listen to what it says in John 1, 16. For from the fullness we have received grace upon grace. Or Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Heirs with Christ? Do you know what that means? Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. All things are yours. Ephesians 3 puts it this way. You have unsearchable riches in Christ. Guys, we have to decide, do we believe this or not? Is Jesus enough or is he not I can't tell you how often I hear it, but pastor, you don't understand. I don't. I haven't walked in your shoes, but he does. He promises that he's enough. All that is in Christ is yours, and in Christ, that's enough. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs says, God the Father is infinitely satisfied in Christ. He is all in all to him. Surely, if Christ is an object sufficient for the satisfaction of the Father, much more than is he an object sufficient for the satisfaction of any soul. If God is satisfied in Jesus, shouldn't we be satisfied in Jesus So, I would just ask, humbly, I would ask, if in, in your life, as you evaluate these kinds of things, if, if Jesus has not been enough, isn't it worth at least asking if you've truly trusted Jesus? Not if you've been religious. Not if you try to make good moral decisions, but if you've truly trusted in what he did from the cradle to the cross for you, because you could never do it on your own. Jesus is supreme, and Jesus is sufficient. I was thinking about this message. This chorus just came over and over and over again in my mind. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. But yes, you desperately need Jesus. So many of our songs express this, but I, one of my favorites have these lyrics. You are my strength when I am weak. You're my treasure that I seek. You're my all in all.
Seeing you precious as a jewel, Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all, taking my sin, my cross, my shame. Rising again, I have blessed your name. You're my all in all. When I fall down, you pick me up. When I'm dry, you fill my cup. You're my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Jesus, Lamb of God. Worthy is your name. I ask you today to cling to Jesus. To be satisfied in who he is. To evaluate whether you're spending your time and spinning your wheels. Worshipping a Jesus you want. Versus a Jesus who is. Homer and Langley Collier were the sons of a respective New York doctor. They both received college educations, very well educated. They were set for life, but then their father died, and then they were truly financially set. They were left his estate in which they both lived, but they chose to seclude themselves from society. They boarded up the windows of the house. They padlocked the doors. No one was ever seen coming and going from the house, and it, it seemed empty. The Collier family had been quite prominent, but almost no one in New York society remembered Homer and Langley Collier by the time World War II ended. On March 21st in 1947, the police received an anonymous tip that a man had died inside the boarded-up house. Unable to force their way through the front door, they entered the house through a second-story window. Inside, they found Homer's body, his corpse on a bed. He died clutching the February 22nd, 1920 issue of the Jewish Morning News, even though he had been blind for many years. It was a macabre scene and a grotesque backdrop. These men were collectors. They collected everything, but primarily junk. Their house was full of broken machinery and auto parts and boxes and appliances and folding chairs and musical instruments and rags and assorted odds and ends and bundles of old newspapers. Today they could be on the show Hoarders, if you get my grip. Nearly three weeks later, the workmen were still hauling heaps of refuse away. And someone made a grisly discovery. Langley Collier's body. Buried beneath a pile of rubbish. Six feet away from where Homer had died. Apparently he had been crushed to death by a crude booby trap. That he had made to protect his stuff. Eventually all the garbage that was removed totaled 140 Tons. No one ever learned while they were stockpiling the treasure. But it serves to give us a parable. They lived their lives in unnecessary, self-imposed deprivation. They neglected abundant resources that were at their disposal to enjoy. And they turned their home into a dump.
And that's what we do when we think we need anything plus Jesus. Friend, today I pray that you cling to Jesus. I pray that you know him and all that he is. If you've never met him, I pray that you meet him today and you experience the change that he gives. But if you are his child, I pray that today you walk away committed to holding on to Jesus and understanding that he's enough. Let's bow our heads together. If you're a Christ follower today, would you just take a moment and evaluate where you are with Jesus? Maybe you just need to recommit. Maybe you need to tell him, Jesus, you're enough for me. I really don't need anything else besides you. Jesus, if I get this job promotion or if my finances work out okay, great. Or Jesus, if I get married or married again, great. But Jesus, you know, if, if the house works out or the new car comes through, great. But Jesus, you're enough. If none of that happens, I'm content in you. But somebody's here, you're hearing this voice today and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why not today? Jesus did for you everything I've described. He's given you all the knowledge you need in Him. He's taken care of every action you could ever do by nailing your sin to His cross. He'll give you the feelings you need if you just trust Him. And He wants you to de deny nothing but yourself as you come to Him. Would you trust Him today? You've just got to acknowledge that you need Him because you're a sinner. You've got to believe that that's why Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And you've got to tell him in this moment that you trust him. Would you do that right now? Maybe you'd pray this prayer. Just say, dear Jesus. Just you and him. Dear Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me, Jesus. I know you're alive today. Now here's the big part. Maybe you need to tell him, I've trusted in a lot of the wrong things. But today I'm trusting in you and only you. I tell him thank you. Say this, say I'm ready to follow you Jesus. For the rest of my life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. But the Bible says if we profess him before men, he'll profess us before his Father in heaven. So I want to give you a chance to profess him today. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I'm not going to draw attention to you, embarrass you, or call you out. But I do want to celebrate with you. If you just prayed that prayer, would you just lift your hand right, right wherever you are and just say, yeah, I just prayed that prayer. That's the most important thing you could ever do. One time is all it takes for all of your life just to trust Jesus with your everything. So God... We thank you for these moments. Thank you for this time today. We do trust you, Jesus. We love you. We worship you. Even now, as we sing these songs, expressing our desires to trust in you alone. In Jesus' name.